Today we're going to look at the penultimate church out of the seven churches in Revelation. The church of Philadelphia. This church is remarkable. It's quite a long letter. It's quite a a long message from Jesus to the church. But like the church in Smyrna, It's one of only two out of the seven that has no chastisement, that has no challenge, that has no correction from the Lord Jesus. So this is a church for us to learn from. This is a church for us to emulate. And in the same way that we saw in Smyrna, this church that was poor in spirit, we saw in them something that we could imitate. We saw in them something that we could emulate. We saw in them that that if we embrace the call to be poor in spirit, to be dependent upon the Lord, in that dependency, we would find the resources of God to touch the desperate. Remember how we looked at how we're called to retreat into the Lord with our hands empty and in that emptiness receive the filling and the fullness from him so that we can return from our retreat to those who are most desperate for the Lord's touch. And so we become not only recipients, but conduits of God's blessing and love. We learned that from the church in Smyrna. And today, we're going to learn equally important lessons from a church that has no word of correction, only words of affirmation. So if you would turn with me to Revelation chapter 3, And verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what is it then that is the backdrop to this letter that Jesus addresses to the church in Philadelphia? We'll we'll look more at the historical significance of these words and the way in which they relate both to the Christians there in Philadelphia and to us in a moment. But but let's just look at the the social backdrop that's, that's occurring here. It appears as though Philadelphia, like other other cities and other churches at the time, was a church that emerged from the Jewish synagogue. Now, we know that this was a common feature 
of the mission of the early church. Of course, Jesus himself was a Jew. All of the leaders of the early church were Jewish. And so it was a natural strategy for the gospel to begin within the community of the synagogue. It was required that there were 10 heads of household in any community to form a synagogue. And it would appear as though Philadelphia has at least one synagogue, probably many more than that, several more than that. A city of the size of of Philadelphia would often have more than one synagogue where, where the Jewish community would gather. And of course, that Jewish community were familiar with persecution in the past, though at this particular time, things were quite quiet. This was a time of prosperity and blessing for the ancient people of God. And as they, as they considered the message that Jesus of Nazareth was Messiah, many came to believe that he was just that person. And many came to believe and to follow him. And sometimes we saw whole synagogues become synagogues of Jesus. But more commonly, what would happen was that some would follow Jesus and others would be less less convinced. And sometimes, even where there were those who were fully convinced within the community of the synagogue, there would be those who, like in the time of Paul, would consider that it was necessary for Jewish believers in Jesus to take the message to Gentile believers in Jesus that they needed to become Jews for them to be fully orbed as a, as a follower of Jesus. There was this tradition, this, this theme that flowed through those synagogues of the early centuries that suggested that, that many believed that it was necessary to become culturally Jewish before you were followers of Jesus. Well, of course, the New Testament attests on just about every page that that is not the case, that God's grace is enough for every culture, for every people group. In fact, Jesus sends his disciples to every people group, not to make them part of the Jewish nation, but to identify with the Lord in a new identity that goes beyond the history of the ancient people of God and embraces an identity that is centered in heaven. Now, of course, this caused great division. And where division proliferated and gathered pace, so it appears as though there were some synagogues that excommunicated the families that were followers of Jesus. To be excommunicated today would be a painful experience. In those days, it would be a devastating experience. Of course, you would lose your sense of history and heritage and identity. You would lose your friends and your family. But because the community of the synagogue was the place where most of the commerce of the Jewish community began, you would probably lose all of the possibility of prosperity and of, and of being able just to make ends meet. 
And so being excommunicated in these days really meant that you were not only put on the outside of the synagogue, but you were put on the outside of ordinary life and were exposed to frailties and weaknesses that you were never expecting. And these poor people in Philadelphia appear to have been going through these very experiences. They'd been excommunicated from their synagogue and now they were really suffering the consequences. And to that situation, Jesus says two very distinct things. He says, to those of you who've been put on the outside, I want you to know that your destiny is not to be on the outside looking in, but on the inside looking out. You're not even gonna be buttresses holding up the temple of God from the outside. You're going to be pillars in the temple of God. Those of you who feel as though you've been excluded, those of you who feel as though you've been marginalized, those of you who have been put to the very edges of society, Jesus says, I'm not gonna leave you there. I'm gonna bring you not just inside the building, I'm gonna put you at the very heart of what it is that God is doing. You're going to be a pillar in the temple. And for those of you who've lost your identity, that old identity that you, that you were born with, that you were raised with, that you were nurtured with, Jesus says, I want you to know that as you stand as a pillar, your new identity will be declared to all, the identity of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. It's wonderful words. But he says another thing, a kind of surprising thing. He doesn't simply say that your future is secure. He doesn't simply say that you're at the center of God's plans. He doesn't simply say that your identity is secure with God. He says, the door that's been closed to you is a door that I've closed. And as I've closed one door, I've opened another. Now what would this mean to a Christian in Philadelphia at the end of the first century. Well, perhaps knowing a little of the history of the city will help us understand why this would be so clearly understood as something that God was doing and that would in no way be misunderstood. God was saying something very clearly. Jesus was saying something very clearly and he was clearly saying this, don't hanker after what you have had in the past. Don't hanker after what it was that you used to be able to say was yours. Rather, go through the door of mission and enter into the new field, the new harvest, the new opportunity that I'm giving you. How do we know that that's what Jesus is saying? Well, if you look at the history of Philadelphia, it's quite fascinating. Philadelphia in America is named because it wanted to be a city of brotherly love. It wanted to be a city of friendship and, and filial bonds. It wanted, to be, it wanted to be a city where people could feel at rest and at home. Philadelphia in Asia Minor, which was on the 
eastern border of the region that is being addressed by Jesus as he speaks to the seven churches. Philadelphia in Asia Minor was not named as a city of brotherly love. It was named after a person called Philadelphia. Attalus Philadelphus II. We can understand somebody being called that maybe once, but then inflicting it on your child is an entirely different thing. Attalus Philadelphus II was the emperor at the center of the Attalid Empire, an empire that extended throughout ancient Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. And Attalus Philadelphus II had a great desire to have his empire kind of echo the greatness of Greece and Rome. He wanted his empire not simply to be an empire with power, but he wanted his empire to be an empire with class. He wanted his empire to be an empire that that looked to the, the classical history of the Romans and the Greeks. And so he brought the civilizing effects of Greek philosophy and and Roman administration and he he brought it into his empire. And he built a city on its eastern edge next to the barbarians. And he built it for a particular reason. The barbarians are, are called the barbarians It's an onomatopoeic word because the people of the Greek-speaking world listened to the people of the East and they sounded as though they were going ba, 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 ba. They sounded as though they were babbling. They sounded as though they were people of strange tongue. And so these barbarians needed to be civilized. They needed to come under the hand of the civilizing work of Attalus Philadelphus II. And so he built a city according to his name and it was called the door to the east, the gateway to the east. And this gateway to the east was to send cultural missionaries into the east to civilize the barbarian hordes. So when Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, behold, I've set before you an open door, of course, it would be like, it would be like somebody saying to us, I've raised a flag with stars and stripes on it. And you go, I think I've got a picture of that. Of course, they had a picture. They knew exactly what it was that Jesus was saying. And of course, these are churches that were probably planted during the period of time when Paul was in Ephesus. And we know that the word open door was part of his apostolic vocabulary when he returned back to Antioch to report on his first missionary journey. He talked about an open door to the Gentiles in this very region. And then writing from Ephesus to the church in Corinth 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse nine, he says, I'm gonna stay here in Ephesus for a little while because there's a great door for effective work that is open to me. So, so part of the language of their Christian heritage was that the open door was a door to mission. And of course, particular to Philadelphia as a city, the idea, the picture of the open door was the door that had been opened to take a message to people who had never heard. A bit like if you said to people who live in St. Louis, I've opened an archway. I've opened an archway for you to do things. When Ohio had been settled and Tecumseh had died and the alliance of the Indian nations had somewhat disintegrated. The civil war had settled the great dispute between North and South. There was a great upsurge in people looking beyond these borders which had been really the first great Western extension to territories beyond. And those people stirred up because of the Civil War were added to by great hordes of people from my homeland and from the continent of Europe, people who had known poverty and penury and persecution, people who perhaps were part of a village where the whole village contributed to pay for a single ticket across the Atlantic so that one person could go to the land of hope. And those people would have arrived on the eastern seaboard and made their way down the Ohio River. And then finally, they perhaps passed through the city of St. Louis in their great journey westward. The last of the great land rushes was in 1893, September the 16th, actually, 1893, 12 o'clock noon, actually, September the 16th, 1893, a great cannon sounded and 100,000 people who had gathered for the land rush set off rushing towards the western horizon. There were lots of land. Those plots of land were 160 acres for a family and there were 42,000 of them. Soon after the dust had settled, tragedy could be seen everywhere. Horses had pulled up lame. People had fallen, stumbled and been trampled. It seemed as though so many hopes were shattered in those moments. But for the strong and the brave, the people who were prepared to get up again and run, there was a great opportunity. And if on that day you were to be the ones who staked your claim, 
you would have needed the gifts and the character first of the athlete to get there first and then of the soldier to defend what you had. Paul, when he's writing to Timothy as the leader of the principal church in the region that we're looking at right now, Timothy was the leader of the church in Ephesus. He was writing to him and he he spoke to him in his second letter, perhaps one of the last letters that he ever penned. And he's writing to him and he's saying, you need to function like this, Timothy. A man who struggled with diffidence and fear. You need to be an athlete. You You need to be a soldier. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 4 to 6, and then verse 15. He says, you need to be an athlete, you need to be a soldier. But here's the thing. A year later, among all of those people that staked their claim, 42,000 stakes were claimed. Maybe 80% of them were lost. Because here's the thing. You need to stop being an athlete and a soldier and you need to start being a farmer and a builder. And there aren't many people who can do all of that. It's interesting that Paul says, be a soldier, be an athlete, be a farmer, be a workman and the kind of workman that he's referring to as a builder. It's interesting that he has all of these pictures, metaphors running through his mind as he's helping this young leader lead his church into the mission field that that God had given him. You see, when we look at what it is that God is doing in Philadelphia and what it is that God is doing among us, God is most certainly calling the pioneers But he's also calling the settlers. The settlers are not a group that is secondary to the pioneers. It's not a pejorative that we're using when we use the word settler. Here's the thing. If you want a new frontier of any kind, you're not going to get it without the pioneers. But if you want to keep a frontier of any kind, you're not going to keep it without the settlers. I bet you know that already, don't you? You've seen it already in your life, haven't you? You've seen maybe that you've been shaped as a pioneer, but as soon as you've kind of got the frontier, this new thing, you think, I don't know, I'm kind of bored now, let's do something else. And if there's no connection between you and your pioneering work and your pioneering spirit and those who have the calling and the character to be the settlers, then so often we lose what it is that we've won. Pioneers, they they eat change and challenge for breakfast and lunch and dinner. They love it. But when it's gone, they kind of look for other things to do. At that point, we need the settlers to cultivate what has been claimed, nurture what has been found. 
I wonder when you look at yourself, whether you see yourself either as a pioneer or as a settler. I mean, we'll all have tendencies one way or another. No prizes for knowing which way Sally and I tend towards. But here's the thing. Over the years, we've had to learn not only to value the settlers, but to learn from them, to see how it is that they do things so that perhaps we can hold the ground that we've won just long enough until the settlers are able to come and hold for good what it is that's been claimed. You see, God today is saying to us, there are doors that are closed to you, but there are most certainly doors that are opened. And the doors that are closed, no one can open them because Jesus has closed them. And the doors that are opened, no one can close them because Jesus has opened them. And our question is, are we going to go through the door? Are we going to go through the gateway that Jesus has for us? And if we are, are we going to recognize perhaps that maybe we need to pull a few people together to do this new thing? Maybe as we've been working in the communities of of Northern Dayton, we've noticed that there's very little for children, young people. Maybe our hearts are being stirred about the frailty of the old. Maybe there is a fresh compassion in us as we look at other situations or circumstances in our life and we're sensing that maybe a door that is opening that's previously not been there is something that we need to attend to and go through. Of course, all of these, all of these different um, characteristics are found in other places, described in other ways. The writer to the Hebrews talks about Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Sounds very similar to pioneer and settler, doesn't it? But of course, we have right there in Ephesians chapter four, we have the apostles. I just spell it toll. Apostolic, prophetic, Evangelistic. Is that, is that where you're found? Is that where you're shaped? Are you called to claim a new frontier? And if you are, what's the relationship that you have with the teachers who are called to build and the shepherds who are called to nurture what is that relationship? And, and, how, and how are you attending to it as individuals, but more especially as families on mission and as house churches? Are you attending? Are you thinking about, are you looking for the open door that Jesus has offered you? 
And if you are today, are you embracing that opportunity in the way that Jesus would encourage us to do so? So you say to me, well, I I think there may be a door, but I'm still not quite sure how to identify it. And, And if I identify it, I'm not quite sure what I should do next. I may be a pioneer, I may be a settler, but could you just give me a bit more information? Well, that's part of my job here, so yeah. Let me give you a couple of little illustrations. What Jesus talks about when he refers to an open door is clearly within the apostolic language, the door into mission. And the way in which we understand mission, of course, is defined by Jesus as he sends out the 12 and the 72 during his ministry here among us. I'm not referring here to the Great Commission at the end of his ministry as he was ascending into heaven. I'm talking about the training and the teaching he gave the leaders that he was raising up. When he sent out the 12, he he said in Matthew, he said, go and look for a worthy person and stay with them. And then in, in Luke, of course, we get the 12 sent out, but Luke gives us this great expansion of of information and understanding when when we read in Luke chapter 10 that he sends out 72 others. So this is not just for the special or what we might think are the spiritual elite. This is for everybody, the unnamed disciples. And when Jesus sends out those disciples, he sends them out with exactly the same strategy. And when he sends them out, he says, look for the person of peace. And the person of peace will welcome you and the person of peace will receive you and your message, and the person of peace will feed you and care for you. And Jesus says, and when you find that person, don't go anywhere else, stay with them. So finding an open door is really about finding the doorkeeper. Finding the open gate is really about finding the gatekeeper. And that doorkeeper, that gatekeeper, is described by Jesus as the person of peace. And how do you you know that you've found one? Well, quite simply, Jesus says they like you. They welcome you. They listen to you. They receive you and the message you carry. And they serve you. Now, I'm, I'm a really embarrassing person to be with. Some of you take the risk of coming to lunch with me, and I talk to everybody. I don't care who they are. I don't care if they can't even speak my language. I'm just going to carry on talking anyway. And, and what I'm doing almost all the time is just pushing to see whether the doors are open and whether there's a person of peace there. And generally what I do is if I begin to sense that there's a person, I tend to go to that place over and over again. So I know, you know, we're Americans and we're supposed to be consumers and go to every place that we possibly can for lunch. And so when people say, what are you hungry for? In my mind, I say, a person of peace. Because I don't really want to be hungry for other stuff. I want to go to the place that is going to receive me and I can build some relationships there. See what I mean? So I go up to Core Eatery up here. 
And I take the elders there because, I mean, obviously they don't eat very well. And, um, and I know that because of the places that they took me previous to me finding Core Eatery. So <sighs> a couple of days in hospital afterwards, I was okay. But I, I take them up to, up to Core Eatery up here and um, I know everybody in the, in the place. So I, I know the names of the girl who's there who gives you the salads and I know the name of the manager and, you know, we're just chatting. I know why they got their most recent tattoo. And they know about me and they talk about my motorcycle and we, we just chat. And that, you know, I'm back again and I've got some new friends and I'm the kind of brand evangelist for Core Eatery and, and I'm sitting there with Rennes just a couple of weeks ago and the manager comes out and she says, you know, would you, would you like us just to come and just give you lots of food and serve you in some way or another? Is, is there something that we could just do for you? I said, excuse me? She said, well, you know, we, we've got this kind of thing on, this promotion thing on, but we, the first person we all thought of when we asked one another was you, so what, what can we do for you? I said, you could cater the elders meeting. She said, sure, I'll do that. So this last Monday, she came and brought all this amazing food. I mean, it was incredible. She just wanted to serve us. Now that's what you call the first indication of a person of peace, isn't it? I, don't, I have no idea where that's going to go. But isn't it fun? And you see, all of us can find people who we like. All of us can find people who listen to us. All of us can find people who serve us. And generally, in this situation, likes attract. And so if you show yourself to be a person who likes people and isn't grumpy all the time and listens to people and doesn't just talk all the time and wants to be kind to people and give them an opportunity to be blessed by your presence each day, it's amazing how easy it is to find people of peace. You see, this is not something so high that none of us can reach it. This is not something so large that none of us can embrace it. Jesus says, see, I've set before you an open door. We were up in the, um, in the northern part of, uh, of the city, Sally and I, uh, with a team of folks working with the kind of restoration stuff last week and we were clearing yards and doing all the kind of chainsaw stuff and we went to one community and it was really quite a, quite a pleasant middle class community that was both African American and white and it was just a delightful place but I mean these were old, old trees and some of the trees had gone through houses and had just decimated them. And we were in the yard of, uh, of one uh, African-American gentleman whose beautiful home had really been severely damaged. And he was chipper, really quite jolly. We helped him to the extent that he wanted to be helped. He had the insurance people coming around the next day, and so he didn't really want that to be affected by the work that we were doing. But we said to him at the end, we said, is it okay if we just pray 
for the community. He said, sure. And we all gathered on his front yard and then he led us in prayer. And this is what he said. He said, Lord, don't let us lose the unity between the races. Don't let us lose what it is that you've done here. Do you think he might be a person of peace? What do you think? It could be that you're waiting for the door to open. It could be that you have to stand back and attend to other doors. I can remember as a young Christian just wishing that my family would come to know Jesus. I was the first and only one to know Jesus and you know, I was surrounded by pagans as most Christians are in England. And so I, I badgered and bantered my parents into an acknowledgement of God. I mean, I was never gonna browbeat them into the kingdom. One day they kind of took me on one side and said, son, we're really glad for you, but you're just gonna have to back off a little bit. And I was crestfallen and I thought, oh, I've ruined everything. I've, I've put them off because I've been too heavy. And, and so I backed off and I, I prayed for them every day. And within two years, I was standing in a baptistry, baptizing both of them. Sally's parents were a, another thing altogether. Sally's dad was the kind of the, the key person in the family. You, you all know what I mean by that. He's the key person. He, he wants to have big philosophical discussions every time I see him. And he's a fascinating person, but it doesn't look like he's going to get any closer. And so we attend to other doors that are open and we do the work that Jesus reveals to us. And we don't know what he's doing in another person's life to open a door. But one day, it just so happened that I was passing through that part of Manchester on my way on a preaching assignment someplace. And I stayed with, with David and Betty, Sally's parents. They've gone to be with the Lord now. And um, I left behind one of my magazines. And it wasn't one of those obsequious Christian things where, you know, I kind of leave the magazine in the hope that they read it. I mean, I, I just genuinely, I, I lose stuff all the time. And I, I just left it behind. And David picked it up and went through it. And he called me when I got home. He says, I've got your magazine. I've, I put it in the post. I sent it to you. I said, thanks, David. He says, I was, I was flicking through it. Now, what had happened, I, I don't know. Because up until this point, there was just no indication that he was moving towards Jesus. He says, he says I was flicking through it, and I saw the headline, Finding God. And then when he spoke again, I could tell his, his voice was cracking. He said, how do I find God? Now here's the thing. It's an open door. You don't even have to push on it. And so I'm standing there on the phone and I can hear the Holy Spirit saying, back up. Steady now. And I, I just said, David, I don't think you need to. I think he found you, didn't he? And he started to cry. He said, I think you're right. What do I do now? I said, well, it says in the Bible 
Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. Why don't you just say that to Jesus now? He said, what, just out loud now on the phone? I said, sure. He said, okay then. And there it was. And the fascinating thing about David was that he went to the local old, old parish church every day and prayed. And he was like Simeon. He was just there every day. And people would see him there praying every day. And they'd, they'd come to him for counsel and for wisdom. They thought he'd been a Christian his whole life. And God gave him supernatural wisdom to help all kinds of people. An old friend of ours who has the largest inner city youth ministry in Europe said one day at the very beginning of that ministry he was struggling he just couldn't see how things were going to get solved he couldn't see how they were going to pay the bills he didn't know how he was ever going to go forward and he met this old man and he he described him and we said what was his name he said I think his name was David Wayne. I said, that's Sally's father. He said, no way. I said, he'd probably been a Christian a year. He said, no way. He said, he gave me such vital wisdom that it changed the trajectory of our ministry and it's what we have today because of him. So where's the door for you? Where's the doorkeeper? Where's the gate? Where's the gatekeeper? Maybe, maybe it's in the family. Maybe it's in your workplace. Maybe it's in your community. Maybe it's in the neighborhood in which your house church meets. My simple question is this. Are you looking for that gate? Are you looking for that door? And are you aware that when Jesus speaks about finding the person of peace, he says this, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. There may not be a harvest where you're looking, but Jesus says, open your eyes, John 4, verse 35 and following, Open your eyes and look, the fields are ready for harvest. You have to look in another direction. Don't look in the direction of the door that is closed. The Lord may open it one day. That's not our business, yours or mine. But are you opening your eyes? Is it amongst the young? Is it amongst the poor? Is it amongst the old? Is it amongst your family, your friends, your work colleagues? Where is the door? Because if Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, then it is. It's just we haven't found it yet. So perhaps we should pray and um, ask the Lord to give us eyes to see. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, open our eyes to see the doors that you have opened. Reveal to us, Lord, the doorkeepers, the people of peace. May you, Lord, teach us how with kindness and a graciousness of disposition you can help us to connect 
with the people of peace. And I pray for each one of us, Lord, in our families, in our communities, in our workplaces, that, Lord, where doors have stood closed before and you've opened them, Lord, show us again. Open our eyes again. And, Lord, where doors are closed, point us in a direction where we can find the harvest that's ripening. We pray this, Jesus, for your glory and in your name. Amen. It may be that the Lord has been speaking to you about this in the last week or so, in the last little phase of your walk with him. Maybe that today the Lord has stirred you to to go through that open door. Maybe you've identified it. Maybe, maybe today you can sense the Lord drawing you. Well, if that is you, we've done this already in the first service, I'd encourage you, wherever you are in the building, come forward. I and the prayer team will pray with you, asking that God will give you strength and determination, the strength and determination of a pioneer. He'll give you He'll give you the compassion and the faithfulness and the stick to of the settler. But wherever you are, if there's a stirring in you today, then, then don't hold back. You come on and we'll pray for you right here at the front.